All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing. And stolen by the fake news media, that's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast that examines America from the outside in. My name's Adam Smith. I'm the Osborne Professor of US Politics and History at the University of Oxford. As I speak, we're in the febrile last days of the unprecedented presidency of Donald Trump. Aggressive pro-Trump supporters, some wearing Nazi t-shirts and carrying Confederate flags, invaded and ransacked the US Capitol last week, at one point dropping a United States flag on the ground in order to replace it with a Trump campaign flag. In response to all this, when the Senate reconvened, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey drew a comparison between the pro-Trump mob and the Royal Marines who burned the Capitol in 1814. I can only think of two times in American history that individuals laid siege to our capital, stormed our sacred civic spaces, and tried to upend and overrun this government. One was in the War of 1812, and the other one was today. What's interesting about the parallel between the two is they both were waving flags to a sole sovereign, to an individual, surrendering democratic principles to the cult of personality. One was a monarch in England, and the other were the flags I saw all over our capital, including in the hallways and in this room, to a single person named Donald Trump. This isn't particularly convincing in many ways as a historical analogy. British troops in the War of 1812 didn't hero-worship the mad King George in the way that the pro-Trump cult worshipped their leader. But Booker's analogy does raise some interesting questions about the curious relationship between the American presidency and monarchy. Booker assumes, for rhetorical purposes, that the early 19th century British monarchy was autocratic. But this wasn't true at all. Since the 17th century, the British monarchy has been constrained by Parliament. The American founders at the Constitutional Convention created a presidency with far more power and authority than the British monarch had had since James II. Of course, the president is elected, and up until President Trump, all previous heads of state have laid down the office without protest or violence. Even so, while they're president, they're vastly more powerful than any British monarch has been for 400 years, and at the same time, as a commander-in-chief with the prerogative powers of a king, they're also vastly more powerful than any prime minister in a parliamentary system. Some conservative constitutional lawyers in the last half century take this kingly idea a step further by developing the theory of the unitary executive, the notion that the president has unfettered authority over the entire executive branch. And President Trump is the ultimate reminder of how much like a dysfunctional Hollywood caricature of medieval kingship the presidency can be. 
He used the power of the pardon to obstruct justice, to prevent vital testimony in a legitimate investigation, and to reward friends and relations. He referred to the commanders of the US military as my generals. He petulantly told reporters to shut up and show him respect. And he expects those who he favours to humiliate themselves in their subservience to him and sets the mob on them if they step out of line. No subject in American history is more mystified and myth-encrusted than the intentions of the Founding Fathers. So when it came to executive power, what were they really thinking? Why, having just thrown off monarchical authority, did they apparently create an elected king? What was their understanding of executive authority? So to talk about this further, I'm joined now by Steve Sarson, who's Professor of American Civilization at Jean Moulin University in France and the author of numerous books and articles about the early modern Atlantic world, and most recently a terrific book about Barack Obama's conception of American history, and by my colleague at Oxford, Nicholas Cole, a senior research fellow at Pembroke College and an expert on the political thought of the 18th and 19th century, and in particular on the classical influences on the American founders. Um, Nicholas and Steve, thank you both very much for joining me. Um, Nicholas, um, can I begin with you? Let's Let's Think about this moment in 1787 when elite Americans gathered together in Philadelphia in order to design a new government for the United States, which was a newly independent country. It had been recognized as such in the 1783 Treaty of Paris. It's all very recent. These were men who, in most cases, had taken leading roles in the revolutionary struggle against uh, Britain over the preceding two decades. And they met together to write this constitution, which um, astonishingly, and for better or for worse, um, is still in its basic uh, formulation in operation. Now, we're talking today about particular about how they conceptualized the executive power. So, Nicholas, what were the range of options that they came to think about when, it, when they came to consider the executive? I think the first thing to say is that it's really important to them that there be an executive power. I mean, that's part of the very first proposition that's accepted by the convention, that the, the new government that they'll propose will have a legislative, executive and judicial branch. And the reason that that's so important is it, it's having those three distinct branches of government in their mind that will make the new federal constitution a real government as opposed to a, to a looser diplomatic union and give it energy, which is often a word that's associated with the executive when they talk. Um, as far as the particular form of the executive, though, there's much less discussion than one might imagine. Um, there's, there's brief consideration of the idea of having multiple people to, to be the, the executive. That, that really doesn't have any support at the convention. It, it's dismissed very quickly. Um, most of the the fuss that's around the executive is how uh, the figure will be chosen and then uh, precise details of exactly the, the, the way particular powers will operate, uh, such as powers of pardon and veto and the other things that we associate with the presidency. But what's missing from their discussions is a really thorough discussion of how 
the executive will function um, in day-to-day business as opposed to, you know, the more extraordinary matters of, of um, you know, vetoing legislation or, or that kind of thing. Nicholas, did they always know they were going to call this executive the president? No, uh, the, the, the initially they, they just talk about the, the executive magistrate, um, but the word president is not a controversial one. Um, there'd been some e- experimentation with other words at state level. Thomas Jefferson proposes in Virginia that their chief executive there be called the administrator of the state to get away from the idea of, of a royal governor. Um, but the word president at the convention, though, is not a, a controversial sort of choice. It's a, it's a very neutral 18th century word. All kinds of bodies have presidents. Uh, it doesn't have that sense of a sort of august reverence that we associate w- with the word today. Mm, well, we'll 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 come back to the question of whether or not and how august reverence was 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 scattered, enfolded over the 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 notion of the of the president of the United States. Steve, if I can turn to to you, uh, these men gathered in Philadelphia, as I said, had 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 almost all been involved in the revolutionary struggle over. Uh, over 20 years or so. Uh, at the beginning of the protests by the American colonists uh, after the conclusion of the Seven Years' War in 1763, they were petitioning as Englishmen uh, to the king. They saw the king as the man who could offer them redress. So what does that tell us about their the, the colonists' conception of of, of kingship, that they saw him as the solution before, in the end, of course, they saw him as the problem. So, and they continue to do that right up to the Olive Branch Petition, 1774-1775. So, and in some ways, the Declaration of Independence is a last sort of recognition of the king's authority, if only to overthrow it. So um, the petitioning of the king was very much a part of it, and they developed much more of a view that Parliament, throughout the revolutionary crisis, that Parliament had little or no role, certainly within the colonies. Um, for some of them, Parliament had a role in the empire, that is to say, to do with trade, regulation of trade, um, or the conduct of wars, joint enterprises, common enterprises, but no jurisdiction within the colonies themselves. Um, whereas the sort of more radicals like Thomas Jefferson started arguing that ultimately the ultimate arbiter in the empire is the king. And the king could veto, and in, I mean, one or two people had argued this before, but Jefferson's famous summary view of the rights of British America argued that the king could actually veto uh, legislation by parliament or by any um, of the legislatures in the empire, um, assemblies in the empire, if they intruded on the rights of another one. So interesting what you're saying there. What you seem to be describing then is a fundamental difference over the governance of the British Empire between, on the one hand, the colonists, and on the other hand, the government in London, parliament in London, mm. which at, it, at its core, which had at its core the, the, the power of the executive, the power of, 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 of the monarch. So Parliament, by the end of the 18th century, by this period, by the 1760s and 70s, Parliament in London 
had conceptualized itself as being the embodiment of, of sovereignty. It was the notion, wasn't it, of the king in parliament, which came mm. out of the glorious revolution of 1688-1689, in which parliament had forcefully and, as it were, finally asserted its right to select, in effect, select the king by choosing a monarch skipping over whatever it was, 57 Stuart claimants to the throne. I'm making up that number, but it was some great number, wasn't it? In order to pick this um, Protestant, uh, William of Orange. So that was Parliament asserting its sovereignty after a century, the 17th century during the, during the civil wars, in which the question of the relations between the king and Parliament had been at the centre of a lot of bloody controversy. So all that had happened in Britain with the result that to by the 1770s, it was kind of obvious to people in London that Parliament had authority, clearly had Parliament had authority in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and Virginia, just as it had authority in Ireland or Scotland. To them, that was self-evident. But the colonists conceptualized things very differently, didn't they? So they, what you're describing is them, the leaders of the colonial revolt, believing, as it were, that they had a direct relationship with the king, which they didn't dispute, that the king was the king and that they owed loyalty to him. What they disputed was that they owed any loyalty or respect or duty to parliament. Is that is that a correct summary of what you're saying there, Steve? That's absolutely correct. You've hit the nail on the head by saying that basically the glorious revolutions, settlements, were very different in the American colonies than they were in Britain, or perceived that way, certainly. Um, whereas, and, and it rests, as you said, on the whole idea of the king in Parliament. Um, the colonists rejected that, and thereby rejected the whole framework of parliamentary sovereignty throughout the empire. But also, the constitutional arrangements within each colony were very different from the way they worked in Britain, specifically the relationships between um, the, the executive and legislative powers. In Britain, of course, you know, the executive sits in Parliament and controls a majority of it, or so it kind of worked out by the time of Walpole and after. Whereas in, you know, that is the essence of the king in, or the crown in Parliament, of course. But in the colonies, there were no, there was no crown in Parliament. There were no governors in the assemblies. The governors of each colony remained separate powers with limited powers, but they were separate powers or entities. And so this kind of, rather than the kind of horizontal uh, axis of conflict in, that developed in British politics afterwards, the sort of end of the king versus Parliament, we had the king and or king in parliament. In the colonies, that continued. This kind of oppositionism, this kind of vertical axis of political uh, opposition between executives and legislatures continued. So it really changed everything about the nature of the empire and about, well, sometimes the way I think about it is things did not change in the colonies. They retained, as you said, that 17th century pre-glorious revolution constitutional character of both the empire and of each individual colony as having... In a which in the colonies you had a governor who in some cases was appointed by mm. London, in other cases not, but you had a governor that was that was separate from the local 
legislatures, um, who wasn't a member of the local legislatures, wasn't a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses or whatever, um, just as the king uh, wasn't a member of parliament. Um, whereas in, in, in England, conceptually, uh, the king's authority rested in Parliament, and that was a, that was a critical difference. Nicholas, what we've been talking about so far, really, is the, is the, as it were the kind of lived experience over generations of English British colonists living in North America, and how they may have come to see the role of the king in relation to Parliament differently from people in England. But uh, in many of the kind of uh, the, the sort of standard textbooks accounts of the American Revolution, what we're told is that these founding fathers were deep thinkers, uh, people who read widely. Uh, what was the influence of uh, theory? Um, and also what was the influence of a kind of longer understanding of, of ancient history on their conception of the appropriate role of the executive power uh, well one of the striking things about the the way they think about the executive is the fact that they they seem to draw so little on their their own immediate experience of everyday government when they're thinking about constructing the executive they slip very quickly into um comparing the uh putative president of the United States to the consuls at Rome or to, to other ancient magistracies. And they, they talk about uh, government in very classical ways. So that they talk about the, the merits of having um, a government that blends the idea of, of authority vested in a single person uh, with uh, the principle of government vested in many people and the idea of mixing those ideas in the, in the, form of constitution uh, that they adopt for the state. And the, you know, even people like James Wilson talk about the, you know, the, the merits of having a single person who can act, you know, quickly and with secrecy and, and with these attributes that, that ancient thinkers had ascribed and, and, and modern thinkers following ancient thinkers had ascribed to, to, to monarchy in various forms, as opposed to Republican or democratic government. And I do think it's interesting that they, they never quite managed to escape that way of thinking about government, even though, you know, their own experience told them that, you know, with executive figures come bureaucracies. And, uh, you know, maybe we don't want to use that term in this period, but 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 come, you know, agents to man customs houses and do all of these other roles. Yet the convention doesn't talk about these sorts of things. It, it talks about the executive in this this very um, sort of elevated theoretical sense, really derived from theoretical re reading. I find that fascinating because, as we've just been discussing, these were people who'd been doing government in one form or another, hadn't they, before the revolution and since and during the revolution. They surely they must have been drawing on their own experience. And yet what you're saying, and I, I know that you're right because you know this stuff better than anybody, that so far as we know, when they actually came to talk about it, they immediately moved on to, as it were, some more abstract plane. Some people did read, you know, did read Montesquieu. But I think more than the people who read Montesquieu, a lot of people knew that there was a principle in Montesquieu called the separation of powers. 
and they knew that they wanted that you know even if they hadn't read the the detail of the text they they associated a a proper separation of powers with liberty and with proper republican government so they 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 did want to retain it um but sometimes that's what they thought that's what they thought had gone wrong right then in the british yes. constitution right so so, so is the idea then that that had there been a true separation of powers in the british imperial in the governance of the British Empire, then there wouldn't have been a problem in the first place. They wouldn't have had to revolt. And by that, what they meant was they, in effect, wanted a much stronger king. That's the irony, right, isn't it? They wanted a king who had the power to veto parliamentary legislation if it was going to infringe the rights of colonists. So they wanted a more Tory conception of the British constitution than did the ministers in london that's quite true although these these concepts become very slippery in practice so you know it it's 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 one thing to say well that the king should have the power to veto legislation that's harming the colonies but but harm is often in the eye of the the beholder and of course british theorists didn't see it like that at all and if you told um British thinkers that that the thing that would save empire would be to vest extraordinary powers that hadn't been ex- exercised for pretty much a century at this point in the king, who was going to decide, you know, what legislation would and wouldn't be acceptable. Uh, it would have caused the most incredible constitutional crisis. So, Steve, I'm obviously being a little bit deliberately provocative here, but um, yeah, is there anything in what I'm kind of trying to su- suggest to Nicholas there, that these colonists were the real Tories because what they effectively rejected was the, the, the Glorious Revolution, right? So the Glorious Revolution, the Whiggish settlement, which uh, ensconced the power, constrained the power of the king in parliament, as we were discussing earlier, that was what the the, the, the colonists were um, rejecting. And so by setting up a separate executive, by emphasizing this idea of the separation of powers, as they did in the Constitution, whether it is from some highfalutin idea of what they'd read in Montesquieu, or what they'd heard Montesquieu had said, or whether it was through lived experience or whatever it was, they nevertheless came to this view that they wanted to establish in the colonies a strong executive that was separate from parliament, which was exactly what the uh, Tories had wanted in in seventeenth century England. Con- irony, An irony. Yes, I suppose so. <laughs> but I certainly wouldn't um, go with your, albeit somewhat um, jokey, uh, Tory theory. I mean, I think what the what they had was really a radical Whig. I'm not saying anything new here, but really a radical Whig concept of what had happened or not happened during the Glorious Revolution. Here, rather than going to Montesquieu, I think we need to look to Locke and his idea that with the proviso that a constitution does not alienate one's unalienable rights and that it secures the safety, happiness, property, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or property or estates of the people, then you can pretty much set up whatever kind of government you like. And in the Declaration of Independence, for example, all it specifies about once you have a revolution against a tyranny, and the tyranny can be of any sort, and bear in mind that Jefferson said that you can have 350 tyrants in a legislature as well as one tyrant on a throne, 
Um, you know, it, it's a, it's really about the safety, happiness, security, property of the people. That's the philosophical principle that matters. So really, it's it might have a Tory kind of result, but it's coming from a radical Whig place. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very good formulation, Steve. Uh, I mean, I'm still interested though in that as you just put it, that Tory result, because I'm still interested in how you get from the radical Whig idea that sovereignty resides in the people, that government is based on the consent of the government, to the notion that the resolution of the apparent muddle of the governance of the newly United States in the 1780s, that the resolution for that included, and quite centrally included, the creation of a strong and separate executive. Um, When we think the executive of the United States is strong, what we typically mean is that there's a power of veto, which turns out to be very powerful in the American case. Although even Hamilton at the convention, Madison tells us, didn't think that that power would be used very much because British monarchs hadn't used it very much. And we think of the president as commander in chief, just as the, um, the, the king was you know, commander in chief for the for for Britain, um, but of course not literally so. And we think of a power of pardon, but again, that's not a power that is very frequently exercised in the in the British case. So we we think of these these powers that become important in in America later, much more important than they are in Britain. Um, but which it's not obvious to anybody at the time are going to be that significant in America. And especially since, as you as you just said there, Nicholas, those three things, the veto, being commander-in-chief, and the pardon power, were three things which, in the British case, by the end of the 18th century, the king rarely, if ever, exercised. And, and insofar as the monarch did do so, it declined further and further through, it, so, it, through the 19th century. So the, so the question then becomes, well, why on earth did the convention vests the president with those powers. I I think we can explain some of those powers if we think, well, what would the constitution have looked like if the president didn't have these special functions and powers? And the answer is article two would be incredibly thin. You know, executive power would shall be vested in a president of the United States. And because that's not theorized more than that, by the convention in in order to make the presidency seem like a proper head of state, a properly august role. Um, the convention feels it has to, albeit modified, vest the presidency with some of the um, theoretical, perhaps, powers that the king had in Britain, because that's what head of states have. Those are the sorts of powers you associate with a with a strong executive, as they would call it, or an energetic executive. And so when Washington becomes president, his job is to try and craft the role. And and Washington in particular, I think, sees his his job as making sure that the, the role of the president is respected and also that it is, you know, a, a proper separate branch of government. So he has a, he has a delightful correspondence with John Adams just when he's, um, who is the vice the, president? Yeah, sorry, his vice. Yes, he has a delightful conversation with 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 John Adams, his vice president, just as he's becoming president, 
where they experiment briefly with writing to each other in the third person, a bit like sort of Caesar writing in the third person. Uh, you know, the president of the United States re- requests the following, uh, you know, from, from his vice president and so on. They, they have a brief exchange like this before dropping it. But what Washington wants to talk about is, is how much he needs to withdraw from um, the American public and keep himself separate as a figure or whether he can um, visit people in a personal capacity, whether he can um, go to people's homes for, he says, tea parties, uh, you know, and and what you see in this correspondence is him trying to think through, well, is the president going to be a, a sort of remote figure, a bit like the the king, or or is he going to be some other kind of figure? And how how do you navigate that in a republic? And and the same is true with the way he relates to Congress. So, um, the Senate, which remember, is only twenty six people at the start, feels very much more like a, a sort of older governor's council uh, in in some ways. The, the the Senate is to give the president advice and consent for appointments and for treaties, and nobody really knows how that's going to work in practice. So Washington does experiment with going to the Senate for advice. But he very quickly realizes that this, this could be disastrous for the presidency in the sense that, you know, it embroils the president in watching treaties that he's tried to negotiate be sent off to subcommittees for discussion. It is not at all the kind of relationship he imagines. And, and so he rapidly abandons that. And um, uh, ever since uh, presidents have not gone to the Senate to discuss treaties with them in person. Um, but you so see, Congress- he creates a cabinet, he creates his own cabinet, doesn't it? So he, he, so he, which was not envisaged or is not, mentioned in the constitution right so 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 washington immediately begins then perhaps in response to that experience as you've described there he begins to create to flesh out uh a a a basis for of, of political authority for the for the presidency by surrounding himself with his own appointed people albeit people whose appointments have to be ratified by 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 the senate but nevertheless he's isn't he making decisions then which are institutionally building up the presidency yeah and and even and even then um the the constitution had said that for for these very senior appointments a president would need to get the approval of the Senate, but it, it said nothing about the dismissal of people in 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 these posts, and of course that remains a very controversial issue all the way through the nineteenth century. Um, you know, if if Congress has said you know the head of department is going to be this figure, can the president uh, remove them from office? Um, because that gives the presidency, if if the president can do that, and it's now accepted that he can. Um, that gives the presidency much more power mm. than if the president is stuck with with figures because they've been vested with uh, authority from Congress. And this gets us to the separation of powers point again, which keeps coming uh, round and round in these discussions because a, a perfect separation of powers is incompatible with uh, with other ends that that people want to achieve. 
like to ask Nicholas on the on the issue of the sort of institutional development, if if I may usurp your role, and Adam, and ask Nicholas a question. Um, was there any sense? This might seem a bit off the wall, but was there any sense that the cabinet was a kind of privy council to? Um, because then, you know, you find a link between the cabinet and the old regime of the king in America. The Privy Council, of course, answered to the king and had a role in through the Board of Trade in looking over the colonies. Was was there any sense that it was similar or am I completely off so the, the wall the, the, innovating? Well, there's, there's, there's one occasion, and, and Jefferson writes about it at length, where Washington delegates decision-making authority to the cabinet collectively and then right. that does have that kind of echo because he's he's away but it, it's you know it's it's difficult you know the, the the american thinking on government in this period is still very controlled by sort of older theories of government that really don't account for institutions like the cabinet and certainly mm. if you'd if you'd started to talk about um you know, privy councillors, you, you really would have set alarm bells ringing in America. It just, just doesn't sound Republican enough, does it? So mm-hmm. so it, I think it's, 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 it's very difficult for this early generation to account for all of the different bits of the machinery of government working together in this way, particularly when the role of the Senate to provide advice, say, for the, the writing of treaties ha- has really fallen away. Um, after after early very unsatisfactory experiments, the, the sort of classically inspired accounts of the Constitution fit increasingly badly, and yet Americans cling to this rather abstract way of thinking about government for much longer than they probably should have done. A century or more later, when other parts of the British Empire uh, separated from the empire and rejected the king or queen as head of state, they also established presidencies. I'm thinking of Ireland or India, but they did so, they created a presidency on a very different model. They created a presidency who, which had the, some of the symbolic functions of a head of state, but without any real political power and deliberately so and so executive power was still vested effectively in the legislature through a cabinet and a, a prime minister in the way that it was in Westminster and it seems to me that you know what the what the three of us have been talking about here is a way in which the because of the particular circumstances and timing of the American revolution in the 18th century and because of the experiences that the American revolutionaries had had with their own colonial governments in which there was a separate governor, they ended up, as it were, accidentally creating a presidency which had the which was vested with the formal trappings of an older style monarchy without really thinking through or being unable for understandable reasons to f- see into the future and understand what implications that may have. The consequences of this obsession with the separation of powers and a a separate uh, executive, separate from the legislature, ended up being the creation of this enormously powerful institution. And so we fast forward to the present day, and we have a situation which, for the rest of the world looking in, seems quite extraordinary, where you have a president who is able, and obviously in the case of Donald Trump, entirely willing to use the pardon power most obviously, because that seems most 
I mean, it, it get, really gets to the heart of the kingly nature of the presidency, doesn't it? The notion that the president can bestow a pardon on anyone, possibly including himself, in a way that a prime minister obviously can't do. Nicholas, you're no. Well, I was just—I was just going to say. I mean, eighteenth-century thinkers. Did, did believe that there should be some capacity for the state to exercise mercy. And so in, in, in colonial government after, or, or state government, sorry, so, so in state government after the revolution, um, sometimes that, that power can move to the legislature, to, you know, so that, you know, there is, a, there is a capacity in the state to grant pardons. I, I think the convention was either very concerned that that the role of the presidency should be august enough for, for Washington, and as you say, Adam, have the right trappings. And we have to remember that Washington is sitting in the chair at the convention, listening to what's going on. And I think it's 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 pretty obvious that um, he, he's a very obvious candidate for uh, the the first presidency of the United States if it emerges. So what they're really talking about is, are we going to create an office that Washington would want to to hold? Um, but they're also, because of their colonial experience, and, and because, as we've been talking about, that they thought that one of the things that had gone wrong in Britain was too much confusion of executive and legislative power. They thought that executives might act as a defender of the people, in a clearer way, if there was some clear independence of the legislative branch, which is why after a lot of discussion, they ultimately reject the idea of of selecting the president through Congress, because they're they're very worried that the the president should have that separate role. So I I think they would have said, look, the, the state must be able to exercise mercy. This might even be a proper function for the president. They just they just don't expect the the other mechanisms that they had put in to control executive action to be really so so dormant. Mm. They had expected the power of impeachment to be rather more frightening than it than it's actually proved. They hadn't really thought through um, the way that 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 presidents would see see their role in shaping the way legislation is implemented, even. So they're, they're thinking about. The, the presidency just just doesn't anticipate the way the role has been shaped and and partly because they don't really foresee the consequences of this much more democratic figure that the president of the United States is the only person in government who will be it mediated through the electoral college and we could we could talk about all of the the issues with that but the president is the only another podcast exactly but but the the president's the only person who can claim to be a representative of all of america's citizens Hmm. and that that means that you know these nascent powers that the presidency has um become much much more significant once once presidents embrace that idea that they are a kind of democratic representative, which actually happens or begins to happen very quickly. Very quickly. I mean, Jefferson Jefferson certainly has that idea, doesn't he, when he wins the election in 1800? And obviously, Andrew Jackson um, really takes the takes that idea a step further as i mean he is the president is the embodiment of the of the great body of the people um i, I mean at the risk of opening up um as we come to the end of this conversation another huge pandora's box i i do want to 
to ask you in particular, I guess, Nicholas, the about the way in which the presidency is theorized or has been theorized in recent decades by conservative legal thinkers, the notion of the unitary executive. So, so I think the issue can be stated very simply, but solving it is very complicated. The, the issue is when Article 2 says executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States, do, does that phrase in and of itself grant the presidency any powers? Or is it merely a sort of introduction to that paragraph? And secondly, when the president swears an oath to faithfully execute the laws, what what does that phrase mean? And conservative thinkers, although they, they draw on a very long tradition, um, think that there are inherent powers. We, we've got to resist the use of the word prerogative, I guess, but there are there are inherent executive powers that are that are very broad. And but you say resist the uh, use of the word prerogative because they resist the word. But I mean that is what we're talking about. What yes. we're talking about with the unitary executive, as I understand it, and I'm not a lawyer, and I'm looking to you to to you know correct me on all of this, Nicholas. But you know what I'm what I is where I I understand a very simplistic way the unitary executive idea is that it is a fundamentally Tory idea. I mean it's absolutely about re-establishing the royal prerogative and being very overt, not about perhaps, although I was going to say not about the divine <laughs> rights of kings, but I think there are plenty of people who think that President Trump is literally selected by um, providence and is the agent of God and is there by divine right. But but in every other respect anyway, it's a, it's a Stuart conception of the presidency, isn't it? I, I think there's a lot in. I'm that. going to come back to you, Steve, on this I, in a moment. But Nicholas, go. <laughs> no, I think I think there's I think there's a lot in that, and and one of, one of the things, for example, is what's the right of Congress to have oversight into the inner workings of executive agencies, for example. You know, when when the when the president is given the power to execute the laws, what what is the right level of congressional oversight, and there are some theorists who who say that that Congress, you know, shouldn't be able to do very in depth, detailed studies of its own, or or control through uh, various mechanisms the way executive functions in the state are done, because that's trampling on the separation of powers and trampling on the right of the president to 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 hold the executive power that's been vested in him, and and it's it's in finding that that margin between the two that where, where the dispute lies steve have we come full circle are we back to a kind of Stuart conception of the presidency does the united states now need another glorious revolution in which the uh, people perhaps acting through their parliamentary representatives in congress reassert their power and hold the executive to account I think you're absolutely right. I think Americans need to reclaim the memory or regain the memory of their revolutionary ancestors' conceptions of particular kings. Because what we're talking about here is the difference between an institution and a person. 
Uh, an institution can be what it is, but if it's abused by a person, then that's a different matter. And that's really what they're talking about in the Declaration when they blame the king. There's nothing anti-monarchical in the Declaration of Independence, except the relentless attack on a king, but it is on a king. It talks about the reign of the present king of Great Britain. Previous kings, fine. But that also speaks to a, a prior um, way of looking at monarchy, and that is to criticize, again, individual kings, usually the Stuart kings, because they seem to have in the historical notion, political notion, a, um, a tendency towards uh, tyranny that Trump has. And so, yes, I think I would not say that Trump is George III. Absolutely not, because one of the things about poor George III is he was a constitutional monarch and quite a scrupulous one, but he was a British constitutional monarch therefore could not be an American mm. constitutional monarch. Mm. Mm. Now, I'm so saying really that the, 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 the advocates of the unitary executive idea want a president to be, to be, to be Charles I. <laughs> yes. And that's, that's where we are, I think. We have someone who has no respect for what other people perceive to be constitutional provisions. And, but the problem is the man rather than the institution. On the thought that what Americans now most need is to invite an invasion from, uh, a friendly invasion from Holland, um, I think we should draw this fascinating conversation mm -hmm. to a close. Uh, Nicholas Cole and Steve Sarson, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. I was talking there to Steve Sarson, Professor of American Civilization at Jean Moulin University, and with Nicholas Cole, a Senior Research Fellow at Pembroke College, Oxford. We were talking about the origins of an enduring irony. The President of the United States swears an oath to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution. But in the end, as the founders recognised, if there is a selfish and corrupt man in that office, he has the power to pardon criminals, to bestow favour, that create a court and cult around him. And we can end up in the grotesque chaos of an American president, an American president, sending his loyal subjects scuttling over to the capital to smash up their own legislature. My name's Adam Smith, and you've been listening to the Last Best Hope podcast from the REI Oxford Centre for the Study of the United States and its place in the world. If you've enjoyed this episode, please listen to the many others that are listed on your podcast app, like us, and tell other people about us. Goodbye. Goodbye.